0: Welcome, everybody, to episode 21 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here again with Bill Roggio. Bill. Hi, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we've been running FTD's Long War Journal for a long time now, well over a decade. And we got into a nice rhythm with this podcast, getting it out every week, but we kind of hit a snag this week, right, Bill? Yeah,
1: Weather and
0: stuff, and I try to take a vacation, which is a big no-no in our business, you know. Uh, but I, so I took I took last week off of recording. The, what is this? The, still the first week of August, I guess. Um, took the last week of July off, and so we delayed our recording. And then we came back to a tropical storm that wiped out power. So we were gonna we were gonna record sort of late for us on our production schedule. And then Phil Hegseth, our our production guy, was gonna quickly get this out for you. But uh, Mother Nature had other ideas in mind and knocked out the power in my area for a couple days so it's been an interesting couple of days uh you, you'd made out pretty better than i did though right bill
1: yeah just eight hours out with power gotta love the backup generator and my neighbor had a tree smash on his house so
0: but not my house so i'm good yeah the power company here said that the damage was worse than hurricane sandy which i yeah. don't i do don't know if that's true or not. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. It was pretty bad. I know that, so.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, I know why. Because if you, I watch the radar, it, it just hit a wider swath while the Sandy went up the beach. That's why. Gotcha, gotcha.
0: Well, uh, it's bad enough, but let's, Talk a little bit, talk a little shop here first. We've got, uh, as we've mentioned in the past, uh, as soon as we get our act together here, again, we are notoriously bad at marketing ourselves, but we're going to work on getting some merchandise and some, and try and get some donations from you guys to fund the podcast and other things we've got going, other projects we've got going, which we're going to talk about. we also, I think Phil hasn't reminded me this week, but I think he would remind me to say that if you guys can go out and rate the podcast, review the podcast, give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which again, Phil, I still do not have, uh, by the way, on my own computer. If uh, if you guys go out and give it a five-star review, that'd be great. Uh, apparently, there's some algorithm that drives people to podcasts that are well, well-received, well and uh, that would be wonderful from, from you guys to support our work if you could do that. If you want to give us lower than five stars, well, just don't, don't bother reviewing us, is what I would say, so... Um, I guess that's not fair, but uh, I don't really care. Any event. Uh, so while I was uh, dealing with the power outage, I was in the middle of writing up stuff and, and and getting ready for this podcast to start talking about Afghanistan. We're getting pulled back in again this week. Um, we just can't can't get get can't get away from it totally. Right, right, Bill.
1: Every time
0: I try to get out, Tom, they pull me back in. Every time. And so we're back. And we're back this week with a jailbreak in Jalalabad, uh, which is the capital of Nangarhar in eastern Afghanistan. ISIS very quickly claimed responsibility for this operation. It was a complex attack involving a suicide vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, which was rammed into the front gates of the prison. Two ISIS teams and infiltrated the facility from different sides, leading to a about a 20-hour siege, I think, according to the press report. So it went from, I think... Sunday, August second into Monday, August third, the siege went on of the of the area, basically the facility and the surrounding area. Um, at least 29 people or more were killed. Dozens more were injured. And as we're recording this later in the week, the situation is still murky. Uh, the you know. Basically, reports say that their prison held anywhere from 1,300 to 1,500 to 1,600 detainees and prisoners. Not really sure how many, but, but a significant number. And hundreds were freed. It's not really clear how many of them are still on the lam. The Afghan officials initially were trying to trumpet their success in sort of rounding up all the the jihadis who who got out but now we're seeing later in the week uh always follow the rogio principle folks which is be skeptical of the first version of the story you hear from officials at all times i've i've uh, that's been impressed on me on over the years and it's it's right uh, because as the week went on afghan officials said oh well you know actually several hundred guys are probably still out <laughs> uh whoopsie. yeah whoopsie and they're saying that most of those guys are are isis uh members now i think bill and i would probably use this podcast now to say look uh, this is a good example of what we've been saying over and over again. We're not alone in this regard. There are other, many other analysts and researchers who say the same thing. ISIS, yeah, lost its caliphate. The obvious point, and I mean it's super obvious, is that it lost its territorial caliphate, which was once the size of Great Britain across Iraq and Syria and had these pockets elsewhere. Um, but even though it lost that territory, ISIS isn't dead. We all know that. ISIS is still alive as an organization. Um, you know, the, the U.S. wants to get itself out or wants to end the quote-unquote forever wars, the endless wars, both... President Trump and his challenger, former Vice President Joe Biden say they wanna do that. That's fine and dandy to do uh, if you wanna just withdraw American troops, but it doesn't say anything about what the jihadis are doing or what our terrorist enemies are doing. And of course, as ISIS fights on that's sort of the obvious sort of layer to the story and we could go down that and talk about uh, how this shows what ISIS has done in Afghanistan and elsewhere you can you can round up their operations globally on a weekly basis we certainly track that and shows that this is still a you know vibrant uh, global insurgency or still a prolific global insurgency that they're waging uh, even if they're not quite near the not nearly near the peak that they were once at but there's another wrinkle to this story, which Bill and I, uh, I think we've hinted on this in the past, Bill, we or specul- um, spe- yeah, speculated on this, on this. A, little bit, a little bit in the past, which is Afghan officials very quickly uh, accused ISIS-Horasan, which is the Horasan province, is, covers Afghanistan, Pakistan, and parts of surrounding countries. This is sort of the mythological sort of area for the jihadis, which once the black flag of Tawhid or monotheism rises again, they basically see that as a divine uh, sign uh, an act, an act that will will show that basically that the is on their side and that they're going to be victorious finally in their battle against the infidels. Um, there's sort of a whole mythology there. It was partly inspired the Boston bombers all the way back in April two thousand thirteen, and others. You can you can point to where this has been something that they've talked about for a long time. So ISIS has this on province, uh, which operates in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and elsewhere. We could talk about that, but I w- let's talk about the wrinkle bill, which is what you and I have talked about before, which is that Afghan officials claim. That ISIS-K, ISIS-Horasan, is really acting like a cutout for the Taliban and specifically the Haqqani network. And what they mean by that is that the Haqqanis are supposedly carrying out attacks under the ISIS, Horsan banner, Horsan banner. Why? Because they don't want to, to claim responsibility for them themselves. They want to avoid attribution. They want to avoid responsibility for their own political reasons, whether it be high civilian casualties or because uh, such attacks would violate the spirit of the U.S. withdrawal deal, which was signed on February 29th in Doha. Um, so that's the that's the theory that Afghan officials have put forward. Now, Bill, you and I have speculated that something like that may be going on here, but. We still can't say for certain we're going to talk a little bit about the evidence the afghan officials have mustered but do you have any thoughts before we get dive into the details here on, on that generally yeah listen i, I
1: don't think it's a, an unreasonable uh, assumption or, or or postulate being made here by the afghan government and there's also another possibility that these were indeed actually islamic state fighters and the haqqani network could have facilitated it or you know, allow the operation to take place. So that's certainly a possibility as well. Um, I don't think either of those um, those theories are are uh, beyond the realm. It's all within the realm of possibility
0: here. Yeah. Now, I before we dive in here too, I, I always thought back to your reporting on the Kabul attack network. Uh, you know, that was going on. That's that's going to play a part in the story, right? Yes. Because one of the things that you highlighted back in the days at the Long War Journal was that the Haqqani's, Al-Qaeda, other factions of the Taliban, um, and other affiliated groups as part of this jihadi syndicate that operates there had developed this, this deep attack network in and around the Afghan capital that was responsible for carrying out the most sophisticated operations, also low-scale operations. Um, we haven't really seen too much that we can attribute to that Kabul attack network recently, although ISIS-K has stepped up its oper- uh, its, its sort of attacks of opportunity inside Kabul. And so that made me wonder, you know, I mean, one possibility is ISIS-K, you know, has attracted defectors from that attack network, which we suspect is the case. And there's some reporting along those lines that the fact that's part of what's at play here. They did attract defectors from it. Other parts of it are maybe there is some of this uh, sort of a covert stuff going on in Kabul, this sort of cutout stuff. Do yeah, you have any thoughts on where the Kabul attack sure. network stays, stays today, Bill stands today, or what's going on with that? Yeah,
1: the... You know, this was a term the military US military came up with, I believe it was around two thousand and ten and you know, what the Kabul attack network was basically the Taliban, Al Qaeda, Islamic movement in Uzbekistan. And I think that probably is a key part of this. Um uh, the when Hezbi Islami Gulbadin was part of this network before he joined the government, I suspect his fighters would still be part of that. I think it still exists. It's just not pointed to in the same way, um, the Haqqani network, which of course is an integral part of the Taliban, played a major role in this. I think the one of the leaders, one of the top leaders, if not both, I'd have to go back and check, were, um, were Haqqani leaders. And uh, I, I suspect if this was elements of that network that the Islamic Jihad, uh, I'm sorry, the Islamic Movement Uzbekistan would have um, members would have played a key role in that. But again, this is all speculation.
0: But this is the background here for why the Afghan officials, part of the reason why they're saying this, right, is because the stuff that you documented for years in Long War Journal, the Khanis really were the spearhead for the attack network sure. in Kabul. They developed the contacts, the safe houses, the, infrast- the logistical infrastructure, the know-how, the technical expertise and knew uh, and the lay of the land to basically get around Kabul and then execute these types of attacks inside Kabul. Now, we're not talking about the jailbreak in Jalalabad. We're going to get to that in a second. But part of what's going on with the Afghan government saying that ISIS-K is operating as a cutout for the Khanis as this sort of front group of, of sorts is the idea that, hey, look, for years, the Khanis really owned this turf. This was their, their They were the ones who really knew how to execute these operations, including massive truck bombings that we've seen in, in Kabul through the years. Um, and now they're basically they're just doing this on the sly through ISIS K because they, they don't want they don't want claim responsibility. Is that basically yeah. the theory? Yeah, that's that's basically the theory. And you know, as we're talking about this, uh,
1: I it just popped in my head. I hear from uh, individuals from India. I'll just leave it at that. Who are constantly trying to tell me that the Islamic State is backed by the Pakistani government, and if that's true. Um, it was actually founded and backed by him. Mean, look, we don't see any evidence of this, but the Haqqani's being a major proxy of the uh, of the uh, Pakistan and its inner service intelligence directorate. You know, you see pieces of that stuff lying around. It don't, it's all the stuff that makes my head scratch in all of this.
0: Yeah, the, the bottom line here is you're dealing with clandestine networks that are not easy to expose, and that's a, that's a big problem in doing this type of analysis because there could be something going on behind doors that, um, we don't see, we can't document. Um, and you only get, and the Afghan government has provided some purported details. We're going to get into that in a second, but that's sort of uh, the, challenge in reporting on this through the years is that there could be something going on that we don't know that does, you know, look again, we're going to use the word speculation or speculative throughout this issue issue of the podcast, this episode of the podcast means take everything with a grain of salt. I mean, we don't, we don't know for certain, but let's, let's get into this a little bit more now. So the Afghan government came out with this claim again um, after the raid in Jalalabad. Now, I think that the situation in Nangarhar is a little bit different than the situation in Kabul. Yes. Because Nangarhar, we know that um, ISIS-Horasan had developed, a it's, as its strongholds were there, at one point they, they had, I think, like six to ten districts under their control, had a number of districts under control, the U.S. and the Afghan government- basically bombed their way uh, to, to sort of uh, f- uh, freeing up those districts or at least loosening the ISIS uh, grip on them. So ISIS can't claim that it, it has those strongholds anymore, but we know they still have a robust or s- somewhat of a network in Nangarhar. We know the Taliban and al-Qaeda have also fought against ISIS in Nangarhar. So they, had, they their intra-jihadi rivalries caused problems from then and there. But we know that they're there. Uh, we know that they have, a, they have had strongholds there. We know that they have their own independent operation there, so it isn't totally contingent on the Connie's or anything else. And part of my concern with this type of story is that it's very easy for people to say, well, ISIS K isn't really its own thing, it doesn't really have agency, it's really a fact, a, fa- a a, a, um, a cut out for somebody else or manipulated by somebody else. We've seen versions of that story time and time again in Syria, Iraq, elsewhere. Yeah. And I, I'm just hesitant to do that because we know that this is its own international organization. Let's give them some credit, not you know saying they're the good guys here. Obviously not. They're obviously the bad guys. But let's give them some credit for having their own organization that's that's able to withstand all this. Right, Bill? Yeah. And this, Tom, it's for that reason. That's
1: why I lean towards the more of the Haqqani network, if this is true, or the Taliban in general, sort of looking the other way while while Islamic State, Khorasan province uh, carries out an attack like that, because we know that, like you said, we know that it exists. We know they've had a presence in these areas. We know they've conducted these types of attacks. And it's just what would make sense more to me in this particular situation.
0: Yeah, now and with the Jalalabad, uh, Jalalabad prison break, um, ISIS was very, the ISIS media machine got rolling pretty quickly on this. So we were watching, you know, in between uh, power outages on my end and uh, service interruptions and other frustrations, um, the ISIS media machine was rolling out messages across its social media platforms. They had the video of the attack team. It was like 10, 11 guys, whatever it was, you know, you know announcing they reiterating their fealty to uh, the, cal- the so-called caliphate. You had infographic highlighting the supposed success of the raid. You had this stream of quote-unquote quote, media reports from a mock news agency. So the ISIS central leadership or central media organ was certainly trumpeting the raid in Jalalabad as its own and saying this is our own and it, there's it, i think the the mock video that came out uh, you know the video highlighting these guys you know re, you know uh, emphasizing their allegiance to the caliphate and everything else that all spoke to prior connections here and prior relationships uh, that that aren't easily dismissed as just being uh, the work of the connies would you agree with that bill yeah i, I would agree
1: with that and, and so and another part of this too i mean we you have to keep in mind the Taliban wants to dominate the jihad, so they, it, that's what makes all of this sort, of pro- these sort of these theories a little bit of prob- problematic. Bingo. In that, if they allow the, if they allow the um, Islamic State, or actually behind the Islamic State, they're sort of undercutting the their dominance over the jihad. Exactly. So yeah. It's 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 a re- If they are doing this, it's a really difficult. It's a high wire, wire act. It, it 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 you know it's it's not something that they, if they are doing that, it's not something they're doing lightly. Let's put it that way.
0: Well, it's given, I mean, to to emphasize why that's the point, uh, why that's a problem for them. ISIS came into town in 2014-2015, comes into Afghanistan, rejects the taliban's islamic emir afghanistan's legitimacy says that their taliban islamic emirate is not legitimate is not religiously uh justifiable on our terms and we're the caliph we're the big bad caliph we're in town now so kneel to Zad basically you know get down and and, and, and you know Baghdadi, who was then alive is your new chief he's your new caliph you know fall in line and of course the taliban and Mullah Mansour, who was the power behind the throne there for a time and then becomes the overall emir of the taliban before he's killed in 2016 He says, uh, I don't think so, uh, guys. Uh, You know, he issues a statement where he rejects the ISIS caliphate and he issues a statement. In that same statement, he says, basically, you're going to divide the jihad. You're going to cause all sorts of problems like we've had in the past. And we've got everything united now under the Taliban's Islamic Emirate. And united also including al-Qaeda, by the way, because Mullah Mansour referred to bin Laden and Zawahiri as the heroes of the current Mujahideen era. So Mansour, who was the overall emir of the Taliban before the pre before the president Emir, Habutul al was clearly an al-Qaeda guy. He didn't mince words about this. He made it very obvious. He accepted Ayman al-Zawahiri's bayah oath of allegiance. That's something the Taliban still lies about to this day, by the way. Um, but this is the point, right? There is there is a rivalry here. ISIS went right right after the kingpins of the of the area, went right after the Khanis are deeply invested in the Islamic Emirate. Um, you know, Siraj Akhani is the number two of the Islamic Emirate today, number two leader. So Basically, to to your point, Bill, that if, if the Taliban and the Khanis are playing this game, they're basically giving a win for the guys who want to take them out, the organization that wants to take them out and supplant them as the number one kingpin in the area.
1: Yeah, I mean, the only, the only way that this makes sense, if they've made the calculation that it's more important for them to have disruptions, attacks against the... Afghan government that it doesn't want to claim to keep things destabilized, but doesn't want to take uh, responsibility for it. But I I would think in this case that that It's just, it's probably a bridge too far in this case. It it really, it really. In this case, you mean
0: the Jalalabad
1: attack, right? In the Jalalabad case, yeah. yeah. Or in general, the fact that the Islamic State is merely a cutout, just that theory in general, you
0: know? Yeah, I wouldn't reduce it. Yeah, that's the issue right there, right? This is part of what we deal with a lot, too, is subtlety in your analysis. You need to have some nuance because, you know, there could be, and we're going to talk a little bit about the evidence here, there could be some truth to this. but don't reduce it to the to the idea that ISIS-K is just a cutout for the economies right. or anybody else. You know, that's removing, that's taking away their agency, saying they're not really the bad, they don't really have their own sort of agenda, their own organization, their own ability. And again, that's what we've seen elsewhere in other theaters. And I, I sort of, you know, obviously we had that old conspiracy theory for years and still lives in some quarters of the internet that, you know, the Assad regime stands up ISIS in Syria or something like that and it doesn't really make any sense when you get into the details. Maybe we'll talk about that in a future podcast. But here's where what the Afghans are saying, where it may start to make some sense. So, well, let me, I should back up. So one of the claims that came out after, or concurrent with this attack in Jalalabad was Masood Andarabi, who's the current acting Afghan interior minister. He's held other positions, the national uh, sort of security services for Afghanistan, the NDS. Um, he claims that the newly appointed leader of ISIS-K, a guy he identified as Shahab al-Muhajir, although he sort of mistyped it on Twitter, um, is actually, a, Kani, is actually a, a member of the Aqqani Network. He says that the Aqqani and the Taliban carry out their terrorism on a daily basis across Afghanistan, and when their terrorist activities—I'm going to clean up his language here— do not suit them politically, they rebrand it under ISIS-K. Again, that's sort of uh, an oversimplification, we think, but we don't know anything about the Shahab al-Mujahir. Do you know anything about him, Bill? Do we know, no, know what this guy is? If, if he—let's say he was— a, Look, first of all, it's
1: Namdagor right? If he's a Mujahir— that means he's obviously means he's a foreigner, right? And yep. I just don't think that's a nom de gore that they would uh, the leader of the Islamic State would take on if he right. was from Afghanistan or even Pakistan. Right. Um, and secondly, I've never heard of him. I mean, it could, again, it could be a, a, a nom de gore for another Haqqani network member. Um, it's funny. i have been working on a doing some consulting for a court case and been going back through designations and names of ha- Haqqani leaders and whatnot. Well, I've never heard that name. That's that's one that I haven't seen. Now, just because I haven't heard it or seen it, doesn't mean it's not true. It's just that's this one looks a little bit out of left field for me. For me, it
0: could it could it could be a new nome de guerre, It could be a new alias sure. he's using. Uh, you know, there's a lot of possibilities here. But this is the claim that uh, senior Afghan officials making. And and Andorabi also went on to say that they have solid intelligence, quote unquote, that a local Taliban commander was behind the jailbreak. So it wasn't ISIS K. Is what he's saying. It was not really ISIS K. It was Hakani's working uh, through them.
1: Yeah, and Tom, let me, on that point, so one article that I've read recently on this, I believe it was a, uh, I can't remember the the source, Um, it was a solid source, but what they had said, the Islamic State fighters um, outside the prison, they picked up their Islamic State um, escapees. And Taliban and criminals were easily rounded up in in this whole thing. Now, how they would be able to pick them out in such a chaotic environment is beyond me. But maybe the information got into them inside, like, hey, look for these cars. So it's certainly possible. But if that's true, then why would a Taliban commander not get his guys who are in there and just get the Islamic State fighters coming out of the prison?
0: Yeah, I mean, this, this, again, speaks to the fog of war, which still, after all these years, covers Afghanistan and all these other areas. There's just so much we don't know about even something like this. Um, now, uh, to continue the the, the, the line on what the Afghan government has been saying, um, the New York Times, uh, Mushib Mashal, reports that a, one senior Afghan official told him that what they've basically done is they've, they've looked at detained fighters, and using biometrics, they can show that current ISIS fighters who've been captured are really veterans of the Qaeda network. So they've checked their fingerprints, they, they scan their eyes, and the quote from the Times reporter to Mashal is that they've often already, they're often already in the system as having previously been arrested or associated with attacks carried out by the Qaeda network. Now, uh, again, you and I can't validate that. We don't know if that's true or not. I can't say that, what, how many instances they have of that or, or if that's actually what's happened. That doesn't preclude the possibility that these guys are defectors, right? So you could have right. them in the system. You could have them in the system already as Akani guys. Um, yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily Akani guys right now. Maybe they just defected for one reason or another. We know that the ISIS-K has picked off defectors. It's one of the ways they've built their network in the area, in Kabul and elsewhere, by the way, but also in Nankahar, is by recruiting defectors. They have indigenous recruiting as well. I'm not saying that doesn't exist, but they, they've done a lot of poaching. Um, so this could be very well be true, and still doesn't get you to the idea that it's a cutout, right? That doesn't get you. Yeah. That doesn't get you to the cutout theory. That fact no, in and of itself.
1: Yeah, Tom, you you read my mind exactly on that particular point. No, nothing else to add on that.
0: So here's one point about this um, that may get us there. Um, again, we haven't been able, We're not able to see the evidence, but. So there's this UN monitoring team that comes out with regular reports on ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and affiliated groups. And in May, it's led by Fitton Brown, who's on Twitter and who did a great interview with the CTC Sentinel uh, in recent months. Um, and these reports, we, we've talked about these reports, we, we, we analyze these reports, we report on the reports. We always say, look, we can't see all the stuff that they're relying on, but they have a number of ins- interesting claims or observations in them. And, and certainly I think that these reports are better than some of the analyzes that are put out by some analysts, uh, a lot better, uh, in fact. Um, in any event, uh, f- uh, the, one of the more recent reports from May said that this UN monitoring team, so this is a team of analysts, experts, again, their work, we find their work to be very good in general. Uh, The reports of the UN Security Council, Um, they said that they've previously viewed communication intercepts uh, following ISIS-K claimed attacks. They're identified as traceable to known members of the Connie network. Now, we run into an interesting wrinkle here. Were they, can we rule out that they were really defectors? You know, that's the first point to the defector point. The second thing is if these guys that they're 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 getting these intercepts if they're actually are finding the current Hakani network members so current taliban commanders are actually listening have foreknowledge of these attacks and are sort of snickering to themselves as it's going on and basically and and are basically pulling the strings on it then that does speak to the cutout theory at least in kabul and possibly elsewhere that basically they are pulling the strings behind the attacks. but you need to show i think what what you need to show maybe maybe the un team has found this i don't know uh, but you need to show that these guys are current Akhani Network members, current Taliban, in the, currently in the Taliban fold, and are knowingly sort of standing up operations by ISIS-K that they don't want to claim responsibility for. Would you agree with that, Bill? You think that would get them there if they could show that?
1: Yeah, I would I would love to see that as evidence and I agree. And I you know the the tactical accommodation that's the the phrase that stuck out with me. They're saying a tactical accommodation with the Haqqani network. So to me I read that as they're saying that the Islamic state exists and the Haqqani network is is being providing a pervis- permissive environment for the Islamic state to uh, conduct attacks. So
0: yeah. So the tactical accommodation again, I guess, is probably a, a another version of it. It's less, it's not quite as strong as cut out, which is a, a word I've yes. used, a phrase I've used. So it's a little, it's a little less uh, stringent, I guess, to, to show that. And then again, that's again possible, but we haven't able to prove it. Um, so again, this runs into all the problems we've talked about. Um, but again, I keep coming back to you know the point that you made, Bill, and then I sort of elaborated upon, which was. That if this is the game they're playing, well, you know, ISIS-K is getting some pretty big propaganda wins out of these attacks in Kabul and elsewhere. Um, And I, you know, let's put aside the Jalalabad attack for a second. I had to go back and remind myself of some of the reporting we did in Longmore Journal because this claim surfaced in May 2018. You'll remember there was this uh, group of 10 young men, really adolescents, um, who assaulted the offices of Afghanistan's Interior Ministry in Kabul. And... Uh, You know, this was an inguimasi raid, so an immersion raid where they immerse themselves in battle and then are willing to die or blow themselves up when they run out of ammo. And very quickly, the U.S. military at the time, General Nicholson, who was the head of the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan at the time, came out and said, you know, we believe it's a Taliban or an Kani attack. Uh, At this time, we do not believe it's an ISIS attack. And then within hours of Nicholson saying that, ISIS came out with its propaganda, rolled its propaganda machine out and posted a photo of the guys posting in front of the, the banner that's typically used by ISIS. Um, you know, they string of messages, you know, they had a video, um, basically showing that they did have foreknowledge of these guys and who they were. The the ISIS central media team knew who they were. Um, you know, it, so that's 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 what we're talking about, where yeah. if that was the Connie's you know, playing this game of, of working, you know, to facilitate an ISIS-K attack. Well, you just gave ISIS-K some major street cred, right? Because they assaulted the Afghanistan's interior Ministry in a successful raid. And you're allowing them to broadcast this this globally and say, look, we really are, you know, we're really hitting them hard here in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, and, and another point, too, what does that say about the Islamic State's media department? Are they, do they not know who their operatives who the authorities are for the Islamic State inside Khorasan? Does that mean the Hakani network is controlling the Islamic State's central media arm? That's why this the the entire cutout theory just doesn't work for me and I'm more of a an accommodation uh, person here.
0: Yeah, so you're you're going for the less stringent or the less, you know, sort of uh, the more there could be something behind the scenes of facilitation, but you know, with this idea that they're just a uh, you know, the Haqqanis are marionetting the ISIS K, let's not go that far, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So, again, back to the basic point before we move on. Obviously, the basic point here is ISIS has done this sort of thing over and over again. It's not just in Jalalabad. Obviously, you can go back to Abu Ghraib. You can go back to other prisons in Iraq, Syria, elsewhere. Prison breaks are sort of their you know, standard fare for them. You know, They've been doing this for years. This is one of the ways they replenish their ranks. This is one of the ways they get their guys back in the fold. It sort of boosts their morale. It says the guys who are in prison, hey, we didn't forget about you. Um, It keeps keeps the jihad going. You know, obviously top leaders of the group have been imprisoned and gotten out and assumed responsibilities again. So this isn't the type of thing that ISIS doesn't know how to do. This is this is basically their basic. This is this is their business. This is what they've done everywhere. Now, this is the biggest what I think stands out to me, though. I think this is probably one of the more complex or successful attacks we've seen in Afghanistan by ISIS-K, though, because it isn't a soft target. It was a hardened target. And they managed to have this lengthy siege there. Um, and they did manage, as the Afghan officials sort of reluctantly conceded, to get several hundred guys on the lam now.
1: Yeah, and by the way, the the prison breaks—that was certain. That's a Taliban tactic as well. I mean, they've they've oh, launched yeah. the numerous. Oh yeah, are all prisons. in. Sure. Sure. Yeah, they're all in that. So I mean it's My point it's there not, was
0: it just it doesn't it's not like they ISIS globally needs the Taliban or Iqhanis or Al Qaeda to tell them how to do this. This is something they do. They they do this yeah. themselves, and this is something they they're very well versed in doing, you know. Yeah. So exactly. And and if the ISIS is
1: and we know it's made it from the Talib, partially Taliban defectors, they probably have
0: the, you know, the knowledge and to execute such attacks. So Right. Well, Let's move on to the second part of this, which uh, came to mind, which is with the Afghan officials saying that basically the Akhanis are using ISIS-K as a misdirection. It brought back to mind this op-ed attributed to Siraj Akhani that appeared in the New York Times in February. So Siraj is the son of Jalaluddin Akhani, uh, the longtime uh, warlord in eastern Afghanistan. He was one of Osama bin Laden's earliest benefactors and mentors, really. Uh, if it wasn't for Jalal and Akhani, you know, he, he played a big role in incubating al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and in the region. His son, there's certainly there's no evidence that we've seen that his son has been willing to forego uh, the, Akhani's decades-long relationship now or end the decades-long relationship with al-Qaeda, quite the opposite. And he had this op-ed, it was this op-ed attributed to Siraj Akani, which looked an awful lot like it was ghostwritten for him because of the verbiage it was used, um, adverbs, phrases, you know. It does, doesn't, doesn't sound like Siraj Akhani, the guy we know, um, but has come out. And it was also fluent in English, which is suspicious. He was, the author is you know, very uh, suspiciously fluent in English. In any event, comes out with this op-ed in February. And it just sort of reminds me, if, if you have the Afghan government saying this, and you can't rule it out entirely that the Akhanis are using this misdirection, uh, or sort of this uh, you know, ISIS-K as a cutout, a front group, we know that Connie's are willing to do stuff like this because Siraj had this op-ed published in his name, which, uh, you know, you and I don't think was actually written yeah. by him. Right, Bill? I don't believe so. You know, back to the English, the
1: perfect English, right? Either the New York Times edited for him, which would be disgusting, or they had a really, really, really good translate, or, uh, you know, s- someone to translate in that in English. And being a consumer of what the Taliban publishes in English it, they never get anything off that clean. It just doesn't happen.
0: Oh, that's an excellent point. I, I hadn't thought about that. We do. you do read the Taliban's propaganda in English all the time, and this is. You're right. This isn't anywhere near as clean as what they yeah. publish. You know, I, and yeah. and they make and they put a I'm lot. Sorry, of I'm sorry. This into is it. this is a lot cleaner than what they they publish. Yeah. Is what I meant to say. Yes, yes absolutely. exactly. It was. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and they look. They put a lot of effort into their English language um uh, statements, and you just they come off mistake after mistake after mistake all the time so yeah let's revisit that reason why i never believed it
0: yeah let's revisit the suraj op-ed so this was published a few weeks before the withdrawal agreement between the u.s and taliban was struck in doha on february 29th and a couple things that we want to remind listeners about about this op-ed because i do i do think this is going to go down as a clear-cut case of disinformation uh that has gotten to americans in this this longest war of ours and shows just how confused, really, America's become in this conflict and, and in general. Um, but again, for the, the deal was sold to us. The premise of the deal from Zalmay Khalil Azad and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was that the Taliban was going to renounce or break with al-Qaeda. Did Siraj mention al-Qaeda in the op-ed bill one time? Did he mention it at all?
1: Not a single time.
0: No sing, not a single one. Now, he did mention disruptive groups, which some were willing, very quick, including some other reporters, were willing to say, oh, well, that, that, that means al-Qaeda. But... Uh, if he meant Al-Qaeda by disruptive groups, then why didn't he just say Al-Qaeda, right? This is the whole point we keep going back to. If you're going to really break with Al-Qaeda, you can't break with Al-Qaeda without naming Al-Qaeda. You have to say Al-Qaeda. Say Al-Qaeda, right? Don't put words in their mouths. Don't let the Taliban play this game. If you really are breaking with Al-Qaeda, you have to say, look, you know, I, Siraj Akhani, renounce Al-Qaeda. That would do for me. That'd be a good start, right?
1: That would be a good start. And keep in mind, the Taliban's official position, and he is one of two deputy emirs, so it's technically his official position, is that al-Qaeda doesn't even exist in Afghanistan.
0: That's right. Good point. Exactly right. Yeah, they've they've been pounding that lie over and over again. And so while they're lying about al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan, they're still not recognizing the Afghan government's legitimacy. That op-ed didn't recognize the Afghan government's legitimacy in that op-ed. He basically just talked about the quest for Islamic governance, which given everything the Taliban says regularly about the current Afghan government, they don't Consider that an Islamic government, uh, quite the opposite. So, uh, and there was nothing. There was nothing backtracking from that. There was no attempt to backtrack from that in the op-ed. So that's a blow to it. And I, one of the more obnoxious things about that op-ed to me was that it blamed the U.S. for the war in the first place. And so people were, were portraying this op-ed as some sort of peace overture, which is ludicrous if you actually read right. it. And then it's basically sticking his thumb. The author sticking his thumb in our eyes because you know this author writes. We did not choose our war with the foreign coalition led by the United States. Excuse me? You did not? Uh, Excuse me? The Haqqanis incubated Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan from where, if you go back to the 9-11 Commission Report, you can see how vital Afghanistan was to planning 9-11 and other attacks and the training and how the pilots for 9-11 got picked for that operation upon stepping foot in Afghanistan and other details, how the the muscle hijackers practiced slitting the throats of uh, you know, farm animals in anticipation of a, that attack for 9 11 in Afghanistan is where they did that practicing. You can see bin Laden's role from inside Afghanistan and others, his uh, military chief and others. There's all sorts of details about that. So don't tell me you didn't choose this war. I mean, it, uh, you know, the idea that this war was, was you know, that the Taliban was this helpless victim in this war when the U.S. gave Mullah Omar and the Taliban hierarchy numerous chances to turn over bin Laden before 9 11 and then a few weeks after 9 11, and they told America to go pound sand repeatedly. Um, you know, don't tell me you didn't choose this war. Uh, you know, that, that's nonsense. And then the author wrote, we were forced to defend ourselves. I mean, this is sort of, you know, this is this was a little too much for me, Bill. What do you think? Yeah, I
1: mean, you know, look, the Taliban had every opportunity to hand over uh, Osama bin Laden and Malomar, you know, came out in that famous statement where he said, he, no, I won't do it. And we're going to see who's going to win this war. So and that was before the U.S. even invaded.
0: Yeah, that was in September, that interview with Voice America we've highlighted a number of times that Muammar gave. And it's all about apologists trying right around this and just cite, you know, foreign, you know, uh, basically... Foreign uh, diplomats for the Taliban yeah. who dealt with foreign emissaries and others who were sort of didn't really uh, agree with Mullah Omar's policy, but they weren't the decision makers. So that was a that's a dodge, you know, of what Mullah Omar's role in all this was. Well, yeah, you know, I don't need I don't need revisionist history about all this. I can go back to what Omar said at the time, n- numerous times. I can go back to the 9/11 Commission reports, documented the UN, others. There's all sorts of firm evidence in this regard. Uh, but here this author uh, in February of this year was telling America that basically the war in Afghanistan was America's fault from the beginning. Well, that's pretty obnoxious um, and and quite factually wrong. Um, so, but if we just think about that op-ed from that perspective, and, and again, it just shows how confused the American side has been. People didn't didn't take it that way right i think you and i were probably among the few who were actually like well this thing's offensive right yes, <laughs> you know right exactly you know <laughs> i mean why 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 is it these guy's in new york and new jersey to say this is this is bullshit and everybody else is sort of swallowing this and there are a lot of people were are new york times is printing it as if it's actually mean something and of course new york times didn't tell anybody that suraj was a U.S. and U.N. designated global terrorist who's got the blood of many thousands of people on his hands, and you know, is identified in Hassan bin Laden's files as a close Al Qaeda Al Qaeda comrade, and there's all sorts of evidence about what the Khani network has done with Al Qaeda through the years, and and you know, I mean, give me a break, you know, and he, he's and this got guy, a five
1: million dollar bounty on his head. If, yeah, if, maybe that went up to ten. I can't recall. I mean look you know that that was so offensive to see that and you know the reality is the Taliban apologists and the endless and the endless war crowd they just read in what they want to read. And, and even General Miller, the commander of U.S. forces and NATO forces in Afghanistan, has a propensity for reading Taliban statements and seeing them as overtures for peace instead of what they really are.
0: Well, even General Mattis did that when he was SecDef. You know, he, yeah, he read that right. statement from, yeah. I think it was 2018, 2018, August 2018, somewhere around there, when Abitul al Zada came out with a statement. And Mattis referred to that as a peace plan put forth by the Taliban leader. You and I looked at that and we said, uh... They published this thing in English, so I don't even need to get a translation from the Pashto. We can read the Arabic. But they got the they got the English here, right? Uh, can you point to any part of the statement that indicates this is a peace plan? This is more like a victory plan, not a peace plan. You know, yeah. victory for the Taliban. So what are you talking about, you know? Uh, I, I don't know. This is where this thing has gone awry a long time ago. Uh, but yeah, that just to illustrate your point again, Billy. That's right. People are just reading into reading into all this and seeing what they want to see as a servicemen are in Afghanistan, wondering what the hell they're doing. Uh, I believe
1: as a friend uh, this called it um, called the, all of this activity wish casting. I think it yes. just describes. We, we it
0: used that funny. as the title of a previous episode on Afghanistan. It still still applies, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but this brings me so so we got a chance we got, we got to use this cutout theory or facilitation theory. The Connie's ISIS case excuse to, to flog that op-ed again. We're in the New York Times, pages of New York Times, pretty execrable if you ask me. And it's a nice segue to talk about something that President Trump just said, which is, you know, President Trump was confronted with this uh, intelligence indicating the Russians had offered bounties on Americans in Afghanistan. You and I discussed this in, the spe- in an episode that's previously, why we're not dismissing entirely, but we're skeptical of it in certain ways. And this is why, well, I, I don't want to revisit all that. But one of the things that Trump President Trump said during that, this again you know kind of boiled you know got my blood boiling a little bit um is he said you know basically he offered a moral equivalency he said well you know we supplied weapons this is his quote now we supplied weapons when they were fighting russia too we supplied weapons when, we supplied weapons when they were fighting russia too now a couple problems with that of course the they <laughs> the they he's meaning the taliban the taliban wasn't officially an entity you know when the u.s was backing the mujahideen in afghanistan now there's a wrinkle here, there's a problem here i'm not to, uh, you know, if you've read our reporting and our analysis along with Journal through the years, you know I'm not endorsing that the U.S. policy in that regard, or absolving the U.S. of any blame, because I do think there's a problem there. We're going to get to that in a second, but. They, meaning the Taliban, uh, you know, no. The, the Taliban was not a fully fully formed entity at all until the 1990s. The early to mid-1990s is when they come to power. They form and they come to power. Um, that's when the Khanis eventually in the mid-90s jump in with the Taliban and, and becomes a, you know, a key power broker, Jalaluddin does for Mullah Omar and others in the infrastructure. Um, but what was... Offensive to me about this, just like the Siraj Akhani op-ed was offensive, was that it draws moral equivalence between America's conflict with the Soviet Union, or its covert conflict with the Soviet Union, and the Taliban's insurgency against Afghan forces in the U.S. and NATO today. You know, that's not America first, right? That's not America first at all. No, it's not. Don't no, tell me not. you're America 1st when you're drawing equivalency between the U.S. and the Cold War conflict with the Soviet Union— and America's war in Afghanistan. That's not America America first, which, of course, is a problematic phrase because of the legacy of those words. But, you know, you and I, I think, are sympathetic to the intent of trying to put American interests first, for sure, uh, and American values and interests first and interests and values first. Um, but this is this is just a blatant attempt to draw moral equivalency between the two. And the Soviet war in Afghanistan, of course, was an offensive campaign, yeah, right? Exactly. Right? This wasn't right. a defensive campaign. There wasn't some suicide attack in Moscow that pr- provoked the Soviets to go in Afghanistan, like there was a suicide attack in New York and Washington, and Pennsylvania, or down airliner. You know, uh, don't don't give me this. You know, the America, the U.S. war in Afghanistan was defensive. You know, um, and this is the thread that ties Siraj Zaped to. This moral equivalency that President Trump drew, you know, Siraj's op-ed says, don't blame us for the war. We, we were on the defensive, right? No, you weren't. No, you no no, no, no. You were given plenty of opportunities to turn over Bin Laden as not-so-merry men, and you said America can go to, go to hell. Well, no, America was forced to respond. Um, the, same, the same problem here, same moral equivalency problem here, or sort of moral, immoral argument, I would say, here is going on. Um, now, all that said, the place where there is a hint of truth in what Trump meant is that the CIA did work with certain Mujahideen commanders, namely, and this we're going to talk. You can, you can list a couple of them who were, or several of them who were, deeply problematic. But one of them, you know, given the topic of this episode, that jumps to mind is Jalaluddin Akhani, none other than the father of Siraj Akhani. You know, he's sort of the star of this episode again and again. He was one of Bin Laden's earliest benefactors, and you know, the network played an instrumental role in the rise of Al Qaeda. And now, does this make the CIA, the CIA clearly work with Jalaluddin? There's there's firm evidence along those lines, firm reporting. You can go to Steve Cole's Ghost Wars. You can go to other different accounts that are out there. Nobody really disputes this. It's true that they were working with this guy. And this guy was a nasty actor, right? I mean, Congressman Charlie Wilson uh, referred to him. What did he refer to him, Bill? He said- uh, it's like- Oh, what was uh, that phrase? Damn. Uh, goodness personified. Goodness or personified. Like yeah, so, right, right, yep. right. And I wrote, I wrote a, I wrote a piece that said badness personified because you know you got yeah. that wrong, Congressman Wilson. You know because you know from Charlie Wilson's War, which is sort of this, uh, you know, I would say simplified version of what the U.S. did, entertaining but simplified version of the U.S. sort of covert campaign against the Soviets. Sort of glosses over. It doesn't even dress guys like Jalal Nakani because. This is a guy whose ideology was deeply problematic from the get-go. You can go back to literature from the Akhanis in the 80s and 90s and show that it was deeply problematic. In some ways, they're Al-Qaeda. Before they're Al-Qaeda, there's evidence that Jalaluddin had an eye on America or that he certainly was sympathetic to an anti-American jihad very early on. Uh, this is a nasty character who was deeply in bed with Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and um, the various other bad, bad actors. Um Bill, I know you. You very early on at Long War Journal, you were emphasizing the role of the Akhanis as an ally of Al Qaeda in the fighting in Afghanistan and that relationship in northern Pakistan. Um, this is a this is a relationship that America, to our minds, never really came to terms with. I think right only partially. I mean, there was a it finally finally designated the Akhani network as a terrorist organization around 2012. I want to say or 2011. Yes, correct. Or something like that, yeah. Um, there was there was a debate we you know inside government about whether or not to do that. Um, which is ludicrous uh, if you know anything about the organization. If you look, you know, but it just strikes me as basically the U.S. never really fully came to terms with all this and the Connie's role in all this um, and, and what happened here and how they played an instrument role in this. Now now you have the State Department under uh, Secretary Pompeo trying to whitewash the Connie network and the Taliban on the way out, which is sort of, uh, again, not, not exactly a noble way to end America's role in Afghanistan, um, but before I, I, I give it to you for some thoughts on the Connie's and Al Qaeda now and why you documented this through the years, I'm always reminded of the fact, and I still can't get over this. I always check the text when I say this, because I have to check the text, I you know that Connie Network is not mentioned a single time in the 9-11 Commission Report.
1: Yeah, Tom, I ran across this um, because I'm using using the reading, rereading the 9-11 Commission Report. I noticed the same thing last Friday, and I actually meant to text you, but I didn't want to bug you on your vacation. Well, I've reported it was and said stunning. this for years.
0: Yeah, I've reported and said this for years. Yeah. I've, I've said, you know, I've said, I, I can't get over this. I always say this. I always say, you know, how is it possible— the Khanis are not mentioned a single time in this supposedly authoritative history of all this. Now it's, I like the Nile report in a lot of ways. I mean, I think a lot of it's good, solid. Um, but this was just such a stunning omission. And again, it shows this, the lack of focus, right? of it yeah. figuring out what inside the U.S. government, what's going on now, Bill, talk to, talk to the listeners a little bit about why this stuck out to you as being so important early on about the Khanis and Al Qaeda in Afghanistan and what this actually has meant for Al Qaeda through the years. Yeah. So the, the Haqqani's well, as
1: we know, they were instrumental in look when when Al Qaeda first started establishing, or Bin Laden before it was Al Qaeda started establishing training camps. Where did they do it? They did it in Haqqani network in coast, and Paktia. Uh, when Bin when Bin Laden fled to Sudan um, in 1991, he maintained a close contact with uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani, and when he returned to Afghanistan, it was like 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 nothing changed, and Post, you know when the Taliban and Al Qaeda were fleeing uh, the U.S. invasion in 2001, in the, the fighting in 2001-2002, Jalaluddin and Akhani played a key role in sheltering them.
0: Yeah. By the way, so, on, that, on, that po- on that point, it was Bin Laden's bodyguard, known as Abu Jandal um, Nasir Bari, um, who is said in his book *Guarding Bin Laden*. He said um, that in fact Jalal and Akani helped shelter Bin Laden on the way out and make sure that he could escape you know just yep. to give it so this was a guy when bin Laden was the became he was a, he was probably I mean there's no doubt he was one of the more hunted people on the earth prior to 911 but after 911 he became the, the most hunted guy on the planet and who could he turn to for help but his old buddy Jalaluddin yeah and exactly
1: and so when the US kicked up its drone campaign in Uh, North and particularly 95 percent of the strikes in Pakistan took place in North and South Waziristan, Uh, the two tribal agencies. We call them Pakistan's heart of darkness. What became really curious, well, where, you know, a lot of people were focused on the civilian casualties caused by that strikes. But for me, my interest was who were they targeting and who were they sheltering with when they were being targeted? And when you looked at the numbers, and I haven't I haven't actually looked at it in a while, but I want to say around 40% of the strikes took place in territory controlled by the Haqqanis. Many of these strikes were senior or mid-level Al-Qaeda leaders or operatives were killed. Um, they were killed on Hakani territory, or a Haqqani Network leader or member were killed or wounded alongside of them. So that relationship just continued to grow. And the Tal- Afghan Taliban's efforts, part of their efforts to relaunch their insurgency, took place, um, were, were launched from the what they, the Taliban called the Islamic Emirate of Waziristan because the Taliban took over control of areas, of, even though they weren't officially the Taliban at this point, the Pakistani Taliban. They took control of the, both of the – pretty much the tribal agencies from 2004 – pretty much up till about the 2010 when the Pakistani military got serious. And so part of the Afghan, the, um, I'm sorry, the Afghan Taliban try, relaunching its insurgency beginning in around 2004, 2005 in Afghanistan that, you know, of course, they used their infrastructure in Balochistan to conduct attacks in Kandahar and Helmand and, and push forward from there. But the, the Waziristan was crucial for getting into Loya Paktia and Nangahar and and the northeastern Afghanistan. And that was largely being driven by the Haqqanis, who were continuing to shelter Al Qaeda, and Al Qaeda continued to support the Taliban. So you know you have we're looking at that wheel of jihad, Tom, that you always talk about. All the while, the Haqqanis are being backed by the Pakistani state. So I just found it, you know, when you start pulling the threads on all of this, I just always found the Haqqanis. It's it's they're they're just sort of a core of this local, regional, and international jihad. And I think it's it, it gets back to the point of why the Pakistanis should be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism because it allows a group like the Haqqani network to continue to survive. It supports it and actively supports it, and and then jihad, local, regional, and and global stems from there.
0: Yeah. No. Well said. And you know, we I'm reminded too that as this. Uh, ed came out that was attributed to Suraj akani was weeks later a couple months later anyway um, the ter- uh, Pakistani Taliban came out with that video remember you know highlighting yeah. Hakamul you know the former Emir of the Pakistani Taliban that you know had given his biography and of course this was shot it was shot inside, you know, he's praying in the front and behind him with his face obscured. Is Siraj Akani, none other than Siraj Akhani, who's in the Pakistani Taliban. Of course, Hakamul Massoud oversaw the Times Square bombing in May 2010. You know, another guy who's been deeply involved with Al Qaeda. And here's the Pakistani Taliban in a video that was sort of glorifying its relationship with Al Qaeda. Um, you know made sure to keep the, to have this little image in there with with Siraj Akani emphasizing his importance and that that goes to the global jihad aspect of this you can't get around can't get around that part of it when it comes to the Akani you just can't yeah you you can't and you know Tom that,
1: something just popped in my head as we we're talking about I'm thinking about the um attack on uh, uh FOB Ford operating base Chapman right oh yeah the, oh yeah the, the Akani network basically gave, gave facilitated the, that the, yeah there, they, they gave the TTP or the movement yeah. of the Taliban in Pakistan a pass through. So, it, you know, t- because that attack took pl- place in Haqqani territory. And sure. that often gets to the point to the distinction. people that you often hear this. Well, they're the Pakistani Taliban when they're operating in Pakistan. And as soon as yeah. they cross the border, they're the Afghan Taliban. So, you know, it's it's just I find that to be fascinating. And it's it sort of could give you a reason to go. Not to, I don't want to take the conversation back to the Islamic State, Khorasan province, but they'll allow this sort of thing. They'll, they will allow other groups to operate in their territory um, to to carry out missions. So it's, that's why I don't think that's all that unreasonable.
0: The difference there, of course, being though, the Pakistani Taliban yes, is we're cut, allies. The, cut Yeah, yes. cut from the same cloth as, as the Haqqanis. And, uh, you know, this was a major operation against the CIA and involved a, a double agent, for a doctor from Jordan. Who the CIA and the Jordanian intelligence thought was actually on their side and was going to lead them to Ayman al-Zawahiri and Zawahiri, the old man who gets no respect, turned the tables on them and and he was actually a suicide bomber in the waiting who killed uh, several, you know, CIA uh, officers and a bunch of others and wounded wounded a bunch of others. Um, so you know this is and the the, the Connie network sat the, the nexus of that attack that operation just as they have so many other times and they're sitting at the nexus of all this as America leaves Afghanistan which does not speak well for the future in terms of what's going to come for this in terms of global jihad. Um, but, you know, again, I, I so I find the Siraj Akhani op-ed attributed to him to be, you know, the, the the blame America nonsense that's in there to be offensive. I found Trump's comment saying, oh, we did the same thing basically when Russia was in Afghanistan. That's, that's offensive to me uh, morally and intellectually. Um, but let's get to the final part here of this episode, which is, um, as we were, you know, trying to get this, trying to get this episode off the ground, um, there was another report in New York Times that came out. It was a good, interesting report that says that in late July, a Black Hawk helicopter operated by the Afghan forces was down with an anti-tank missile um, after it was conducting an evacuation mission in Helmand. This was again, this was a report by the New York Times, um, and that basically this attack was very similar to another downing that occurred in january in a, in a location nearby and the times reported on july 30th that, Ar- that iran the iranians are suspected of supplying the missiles that were used in the operations now they say that american and afghan officials claim the weapons used in both strikes meaning both the january downing and the july downing uh were most likely supplied by iran but they offered no evidence to support the assertion so they can't actually say this is true for sure at least in the terms of reporting we can't again we can't look at the underlying intelligence. Um, of course, Iran denies this. They deny everything. But you and I, Bill, thought right away, isn't this interesting? You know, we did that episode on the Russian bounty story. And the Russian bounty story, of course, lit up the the, the national press here in the U.S. because of the Russia angle, right? Russia, Russia, right. Russia, Russia, right? But uh, this story, which actually, you in that story, you couldn't actually point to any loss of life, which is important, I think. You know, although, listen, the, offer, the alleged offer of bounties, that's important, too, if I were you know, Commander-in-Chief, I'd I'd lock down right away on that and be like, you know, no, you're not, not threatening American service members. And I think more should have been done in that regard by President Trump and others to make sure that that was communicated efficiently and as quickly as possible. However... That story doesn't have, still this many weeks later, doesn't have, um, you know, basically conclusion to it in terms of what actually happened in Afghanistan. We don't actually have any concrete evidence of what happened in Afghanistan. Here we have a story saying that Iran is suspected of supplying these anti-tank missiles, which did lose, lead to the loss of life or led to the loss of two Black Hawk helicopters and could have led to, could have led to more loss of life. Um, and that New York Times to its credit reported this but then it just sort of went nowhere right and this this has to do with the perception problem you and I've talked yeah. about Bill right yeah this, this right. isn't sexy right this isn't sexy to, to, to mainstream reporters
1: I I don't understand it but like as we said when we uh, we discussed the Russia bounty I mean we can point to Iran, being having direct involvement in killing American soldiers in a, in Iraq, right, and and the yet the Trump the Obama administration cut a nuclear deal with them and gave them billions of dollars. Nobody got their panties in a bunch on that one, and yet you have something here where it's a suspected, um, where they can't point to a single attack, and and it's the, a major story. And of course, that's all because it's Trump Russia and um it, there may be something to it that but i haven't seen it i'm i'm waiting to see it um but you know it, look in this case the uh, i don't understand if there is evidence why the um why they won't release it I, I, one of the things i track closely when i was in
0: it, which which uh, part I, of it? You mean turning Iran or the Iranian story here or the Russia story?
1: Yeah, so on the Iranian story, yeah. I'm gonna switch switch gears right, here. Right. They should be able to provide evidence of this, uh and if this was an Iranian supplied anti tank missile. They should provide evidence of that. And they can because in but some images I'm of the missiles,
0: right? Show us what the missiles yeah, exactly. that was used, and, do a, yeah, do a whole rundown of which
1: it's it's not something that is uh, that they haven't done. They did it in Iraq all the time. They would release this information as they gathered it. In, with EMPs and other types yeah. of
0: weapons that were used, right? I mean, Rockets,
1: they show, mortars. Yeah. They yeah. would show the markings and never say they would come from this factory. They did, that, they did it with that, that,
0: that shipment to the Houthis that, that was reported, yeah, you know? Exactly.
1: So if that evidence is out there, show it. I mean, just put this one to bed. Um, I never understand the classification or why this is being done under the covers. Either Iran did that, supplied the weaponry, or it's an Iranian made a weapon oh. that was somehow fell into the hands of the Taliban, or it's not.
0: Folks, um, folks, Bill just returned us to under the covers. <laughs> he, he used that line once again. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> You know, Bill, that that uh, brings up an idea here. We could watch a whole new podcast called Jihad Under the Covers.
1: Ooh, Jihad
0: Under the Covers. But it's a good it's a good phrase to to explain sort of, you know, that there's this this whole murky aspect of these relationships. It's consistent with the story on ISIS K and the Connies and everything else, right? I mean, there's right. all sorts of stuff going on that we can't see, and you know, that's part of the challenge in reporting on this stuff.
1: You know, look, ironically, um, the Afghan government is trying to provide more evidence of a Haqqani Islamic State, you know, cutout type story than the U.S. government, U.S. military and government are trying to provide evidence on an Iranian missile targeting a Black Hawk helicopter. That's just blows my mind.
0: You know, it, it's funny because the original Iran Taliban relationship, of course they were at loggerheads in 1998 to um, nearly went to war. There was a war of words, certainly after the Taliban killed these Iranians in Mazar Sharif. Um, you know, the two are not natural allies in that regard. They're at, at loggerheads, but at, you know, that opposed to one another, but you know, things started to change in 2000, and 2001. And I reported on this, um, taliban emissary from mullah omar a key figure who was also the governor in the western herat province at one point in time kurula Kerkwa, who was held at guantanamo for years he was part of the exchange for bo bergdahl um Kerkwa, he actually ne- helped negotiate the original taliban relationship with iran against us that the iranians offered the talib to help the taliban against us He helped negotiate that under the covers, that deal, you know, basically. to, And it was just something that he told people at Guantanamo about, American officials at Guantanamo about. It was eventually held up in a district court when his habeas petition came up to be heard. Um, You know, it's something that, that, and there's a long line of evidence from Caraco, this ex-Guantanamo detainee, who was part of the transfer of Bo Bergdahl. There's a long line of evidence from then to this story in the New York Times in late July talking about the Iranians supplying weapons and other support for the Taliban. You have the the Trump administration came out with these designations highlighting the role that the IRGC was playing um, in supporting the Taliban with camps you know on the border there and the, along the Iranian Afghan border um, providing weapons cash training safe houses that sort of thing um, they named specific personnel from the IRGC and designate two of them and then they named the Taliban shadow governors who were on the other uh, side of the coin who were working with the Iranians and again we highlight these designations because we know that they go through a rigorous interagency process in the US that basically they have to be based on solid intelligence that the U.S. intelligence community thinks will will basically hold up in a court of law because because it basically can be sued about on, on, on this if they get it wrong. And also these, these designations, basically everybody has to sign off on and say that this, there's nothing, there's no big hole here. So we, we put a lot of stock in these designations when they come out because we consider them to be sort of based on bedrock intelligence. It's a long-winded way of saying you can point to DOD reporting, State Department reporting, designations, all sorts of stuff. It shows that this—and Karakwa's story, other story, other parts of the story that show that this relationship has been going on for a number of years. So none of that surprises you, right, Bill, that the IRGC or the Iranians are, have a hand in what the Taliban's doing. Yeah, to, to me, the one of the most uh,
1: convincing pieces of—it was a designation, which was 2000— so just so you think this wasn't, you know, a Republican effort to try to go to war with Iran, in August 2006, 2010— uh, it, under the Obama administration, uh, Treasury um, described the Ansar Corps, which is uh, one a command of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps that is, uh, is uh, put together to part. Part of its efforts were to um, support the Taliban. It talked about safe houses and training camps and all how under people the covers, move right, back built, and forth. all under, yeah, the, covers, all yeah. under the covers. So. Yeah. Like you said, there's two decades worth of evidence here. I find it to be consider you know, so that's why when I see an article like Iran supplied uh, the Taliban with anti-tank missiles, I say, that's not unreasonable. That could happen. I'd love to see the evidence of it. Um, and I think we should and that's something that the US military certainly can do but I don't need to see that to know that the Iran supports the Taliban
0: no I to be fair to the press I, I'd like to think that if this involved the loss of American life or a threat to American life it would have gotten more attention
1: yeah, from the right. press
0: but um, but by the same token we know that the Russia stuff always yeah. it, the, the pump is primed on that one to basically you know so, trumpet all that stuff right away yeah
1: and th- think
0: about that Tom so the so
1: okay fine the press you know Iran. Iran would be supporting the Taliban as the U.S. is withdrawing. So Iran essentially would be going, you know, is siding not against the United States pretty much at this point because the U.S. is done. The Taliban used using that weapon to target Afghan helicopters. So, you know, this isn't an attack spawned against the U.S. So to me. You know, because look, I know there's a lot of apathy in the press when it comes to reporting on Iran and U.S. and Al Qaeda and the Taliban, and, be, and, and because
0: it's things. all framed from the perspective you talked about, right? That there's yeah. all this we've we've run into it where you have these reporters and others. It's all war mongering effort to start, yes, going to exactly, Iran. right? Suppose just yeah, reporting I mean, what, a, suppose reporting what a regime that proclaims death to America regularly is doing. You know, lo, yeah, lo, right. Lo, like lo and behold, they're violent. Oh, oh, it's a shocker, and they're deeply invested in terrorism. You know, surprising. Yeah. You know? Yeah,
1: I mean, look, new, uh, you know, go back to the desi- oh, these designations happened under the Obama and the Trump administration. I think some occurred in the uh, Bush administration as well. It's over three successive uh, administrations. So, you know, is it the entire? You know, does everyone want to go to war with Iran? I mean, I think the Obama administration did the le- look at the the nuclear deal. I mean, they, they clearly don't want to go to war with Iran, and yet here's the evidence. So.
0: Okay, well, I think we're going to leave this, leave it there for this long, delayed episode of Generation Jot, or at least delayed by a few days anyway, I shouldn't say long delayed. Guess I'm being a little rough on myself there for finally getting around to doing this. Um, again, I think on our way out here, I'll encourage you to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Phil. Am I making you happy by saying that, or you know, can I get a thumbs up? All right. Yeah, he said very good. Um, so... Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And you can listen to us under the covers if you like. That's your business, not ours. We'll see you next week. <laughs>